Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Amen. We're so blessed that you can join us today. And we're going to be continuing our study in Elijah. Uh, today, we're, I don't know if we're going to wrap it all up today, but we'll go as far as the Holy Spirit allows. Amen. Glory to God. First, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we'll be studying today. But before we do that and get into the Bible study, let's go ahead and do our confession of faith, commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed, as we lay a solid foundation for the word which we're going to study today. Amen. Just repeat these words after me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall return soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in communion with saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Glory to God. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll be reading beginning in verse 1 down through about, oh, verse 15. And the question I have for you today as we get into the study, have you ever had one of those days or one of those weeks where you just felt as though things just can't possibly get any worse? Maybe it seemed that only a short while before everything was going just fine. But then something happened to send your entire world spinning out of control. I know I've been there there on several occasions. I'm sure you have well as well. But a man named Elijah was about to have that kind of day. Amen. So let's begin reading 
in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Remember we studied how he had killed 450 prophets that Jezebel was feeding at her table. Amen. He had called fire down from heaven that the people had abandoned the worship of Baal and were now confessing that Jehovah, Yahweh, was the true God. So Elijah, uh, after killing them, he prayed for rain. Now it was starting to rain again. The people were believing and following the God of Elijah. So Ahab returns back and tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, verse 2, So may the gods do to me and even more if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and rose up and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself, as he's praying to God, that he might die and said, That's enough now, Lord. Just take my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel that touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey you're about to go on is too great for you. So he arose, ate and drank, and then went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for you, Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they seek my life to take it away. So God said to him, Go forth, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. A great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle wind blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard this still, small voice that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went outside and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then that still small voice came to him again and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And again, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Son of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they seek my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go ahead, 
return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. Okay, we'll stop right there for right now. Have you ever had that kind of day or week where you just felt as though things could not possibly get any worse? And it only seemed just a short while before everything was going just perfect. I mean, it was just grand. Then something happened and your entire world was turned upside down. Perhaps you've experienced such a time in your life when you just figure you just can't endure anymore. It may have been so grim, in fact, that you actually prayed, Lord, I've had enough. Well, today we're going to take a look back on a certain prophet who most definitely experienced just such a time like this in his life. And as we open the word this morning to his story, it's my hope, my prayer, that through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that we will both, you and I, will gain new spiritual strength and wisdom that will serve to encourage us in those unavoidable times of crisis. So far in our study of the prophet Elijah's life and ministry, we found him to be extraordinarily faithful to the Lord. Wherever God sent him, he went. Remember, we studied about a place called there. Your provision God, is, he doesn't give it to you where you are. He sends it ahead to your place called there. When he says, I want you to go there, your provision's already there. We likened it to a quarterback throwing a ball to his receiver going downfield. That receiver is running at full speed, whatever pattern has been called for in the huddle. The quarterback sees the receiver. He doesn't throw it to where he's at. He throws it to where he is supposed to be. And if the receiver decides instead of cutting across the field, he's just going to run straight down the sidelines, that ball falls in an open field. If they're lucky, it may get intercepted. But if that receiver makes the cut, sprints full speed to the point appointed in the huddle by the quarterback, that ball will be at that exact spot at the moment the receiver is at that exact spot. And it's the same way with provision from the Lord. Amen? So, we see God sending Elijah. Tells him where to go, he goes. Whatever God tells him to do, he does. And up to this point, he has been exceedingly successful in his mission to turn the hearts of the people away from Baal and back to God. And along the way, the Lord performed many miracles for Elijah. His prayer closed up the heavens so that it didn't rain for three and a half years. He was fed by ravens in the wilderness twice a day. He was miraculously supplied with flour and oil in the midst of a very severe famine. It was also the faith behind Elijah's prayer that caused fire to descend upon Mount Carmel in the sight of all the people. It was even the same kind of faith that raised the widow's son from the dead. It was evident for everyone to see that Elijah most definitely had connections to God in very high places. Amen? At the time, he was the only active 
servant and prophet of God left. That part was true. Yet the Lord was making tremendous reforms in Israel because of his testimony, because of his preaching, because of his actions. As you may recall, when we last left Elijah, he had just won a major battle for the Lord against Baal. And he had all the prophets and all the priests of the false deity killed. The people had witnessed for themselves the awesome power of Yahweh God when he answered Elijah's prayer with both fire and then the much-needed rain. Yes, the drought was finally over, and it seemed as though Elijah's work was almost completed for the people on the mountaintop had unanimously vowed to once again exclusively serve the Lord God. I can almost picture Elijah falling back into his lazy boy recliner, exhaling that, that deep sigh of relief after a hard day's work. I mean, he was back home in town, back in his house. But much too often, we don't realize that these men of faith that we read about in the Bible, they're just human beings, just the same as you and I. No difference. Amen. And they are just as spiritually vulnerable as we are today. In his letter to the churches, the Apostle James states that Elijah was a man just like us. That is to say, he was subject to the same weaknesses, subject to the same temptations, just as we are. And let me tell you, at this point in time, Elijah was both physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. But, with this major victory behind him, he just knew that his running and hiding out days were over. Surely he was no longer the most wanted man in Israel, for everybody had seen for themselves the remarkable power of his God, and they, along with the king, greatly welcomed his mercy, falling abundantly upon the land in the form of this life-giving rain. Yes, Elijah was now a national hero. He had been faithfully obedient to God for three and a half years. Now he looked forward to this well-deserved rest from all his enemies. He was going to kick back and take it easy for a little bit. Visit with friends and family that he hadn't seen in a while. Kick back in his own house like, oh man, this is so much better than the caves. Amen? Well, shortly after returning home, just as the stressed out prophet was beginning to catch his breath, a servant from the king's palace arrives with a message for him. And I'm sure Elijah, he, you know, he must have thought to himself, this messenger was coming to express sincere words of gratitude from Ahab for praying for the rain to return. Maybe even it was going to be an official proclamation uh, to enact the verbal agreement that they had made on Mount Carmel, stating that Yahweh was to be the only God worshipped in all of Israel. But as the weary-eyed prophet listened to the servant's message, he could not believe his ears. 
This messenger did not come to convey heartfelt thanks on behalf of the king and the kingdom, but rather he came relaying a threat on his life from the queen Jezebel. Now just put yourself in Elijah's sandals for a second. Just when he thought he was making progress, just as he was beginning to see the light at the end of a long, dark tunnel, it happened. All of a sudden, Elijah felt the weight of the world coming down upon him. And in verse 3, when Elijah was faced with this promise from the queen that he would be killed within 24 hours, we're told that the prophet ran for his life. This same man who dared rebuke the king of Israel publicly with a prophecy of doom. This same man who stood alone against a multitude of idol worshipers and emerged victorious now turns tail and runs like a scared rabbit because of the threat of one woman. Why? Why did he run? It seems like Elijah should have told the messenger, go back and tell Jezebel, you want some of me too? Bring it on, lady. But he didn't do that. For reasons we are not told, Elijah had somehow lost his spiritual edge. Before at the brook and also in Zarephath, he had waited on the Lord to give him instructions. And he had sought instructions from the one on high as to what he should do. And even when the brook dried up, he refused to budge unless he heard from God. But now fear had driven him to impatience. And impatience had now driven him to disobedience. And he took off and ran out of town. He ran through Jezreel through Judah, to the southernmost town of Beersheba. But even after he had put so much distance between him and Jezebel, he still didn't feel safe. So he left his servant there and continued on by himself another full day's journey out into the desert. And the Bible tells us that after he had gone as far as his exhausted body would allow him to go, he sat down underneath a juniper tree to rest. And while he was sitting there, he drifted off to sleep. Elijah uttered a very strange bedtime prayer. While most of us pray that we might wake up to see another day, Elijah, in verse 4, prayed, Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. Now remember, here is a man who is running to preserve his life. And yet now, in his exhaustion, mental, physical, and spiritual exhaustion, he asks God to take his life. He just wants to die. Fear makes us do very strange things. I don't know why, but we seem to lose all rationalizing capabilities when we submit to fear's hold. Folks, fear is one of Satan's favorite tactics and one of his most effective weapons against the children of God. It tends to 
disorient us and cause us to take our eyes off of him who alone is able to save us to the uttermost. Think about this. Queen Jezebel and her imaginary god Baal all but defeated after the showdown on Mount Carmel. But this wicked queen had one last card to play, and she played it well. You know, in poker, you, you know if you're holding a very strong hand, chances are when this other person is going to upload the whole pot, they're bluffing. Amen. You're looking at the hand you're holding, and you're going to call the bluff and probably walk away a winner. Especially with Elijah, God had followed through on every single thing he had told him to do. He told him to go tell the king it's not going to rain, and it didn't rain. He told Elijah to go and hide by the book uh, Cherith, and he'd hide him there. He did. He told me he'd feed him twice a day from the birds of the air. He did. He drank from the brook. The brook dried up. God told him to go to Zarephath. He did. He was sustained there supernaturally. The widow's son died. He prayed for the life to come back into the boy. It happened. God told him to go back now and do the, the fire on the mountain contest between himself and the prophets of Baal and God showed up miraculously there he prayed for rain to come back it did he supernaturally outran a chariot 20 miles to Jezreel all of these things God supernaturally showed up on the scene and then one note from a wicked woman he turns tail and runs So, she used the element of fear to get this prophet on the run and out of town. She did this to give her time to regroup, to do some damage control, and once again deceive the people. If, when Elijah received that threatening message from Jezebel, he would have sent the messenger back with a bold declaration of his God's power and a warning for her to repent and convert, things would have probably turned out a lot differently. But his running away did a tremendous amount of damage to Israel's newfound reformation, and it greatly offset the progress that had just been made on Mount Carmel. So here we are with an obviously depressed, exhausted, emotionally spent prophet collapsing underneath a broom tree in the middle of the desert. In his mind, Elijah had done all he possibly could, but in his mind, he felt he had still come up short of fulfilling the mission. Was God pleased that Elijah had not consulted him before running away so rapidly and acting so harshly? No, I don't think so. But as with us, God realized Elijah was merely human. And in his moment of weakness, in his moment of exhaustion, Elijah made a bad decision. That's why he sent this 
distraught servant some much-needed encouragement and strength. Let's go back and look at 1 Kings 19, and we'll read this time from verses 5 through 9. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat! He looked around. There by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel came back a second time, touched him, said, Get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled another 40 days and 40 nights until he, meet, until he reached Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into the cave and spent the night. So you see, God did not abandon his servant because the servant made a mistake that he should have known better than to make. Rather, God allows him to run, to give full vent to the desperation welling up inside of him. And along the way, the Lord still provided for him. You know, you can have a calling on your life and you do what you thought was right, and then you make a bad choice. That doesn't mean God abandons you. Amen? God never changes. Amen. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I never change, the word says. The calling of God is sure and without repentance. If there is a calling on your life, if you were called when you were 16 years old to be a preacher of the gospel and you've ran from it your entire life, when you're 33 and you feel the calling of God on your life, it's because God's calling never changes. You may have ran from it, avoided it, worked against it, sinned against it, did all these things so you wouldn't have to be a preacher. Guess what? You are still a preacher. Now, some of you are not called to preach or teach and you know all that. That's fine. But God still has a calling on your life. And you know spiritually what you're supposed to do. Just because you failed does not mean God failed. Just because you failed does not mean God made a mistake in calling you. It means you failed. But God is a just God and he's quick to forgive. And he will reinstate you into the calling he has for you. Amen. So here we see God allowing Elijah to run. Elijah's mad. He's scared. He's full of fear. And God is just going to allow it to get all out of his system where he can get to the point where he can talk again to Elijah one-on-one. -on -one. Amen? And even though it appeared Elijah was aimlessly running away from somebody, he was actually running to someone. He had a deep need to flee to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of God. This was the very mountain where God met with Moses. And it was there that Elijah so desperately wanted to commune with God himself. So many times we like 
the befuddled prophet here think that our geographical location, a church or Jerusalem or the site of a vision or whatever, is paramount to our spiritual connection with God. You know, you get people, you have to go to church to talk to God. No, you don't. You can talk to God in a prison cell. You can talk to God on the battlefield. You could talk to God in a car accident. You could talk to God in your bedroom, your bathroom, your kitchen, the living room, out in the backyard, in the swimming pool, wherever you are at. You can talk to God, for He is every place. But in our minds, we think we have to go to church or to the. And even being in church isn't good enough. We got to go inside the church. We got to go to the altar. We got to kneel down in front of the altar. No. God is where you are at. Wherever you are at right now, you could be listening to me in your car. God is with you right there. This somehow could be played in a bar. God is with you in that bar. Somehow this could be played to you. Maybe the clerk at a 7-Eleven you're about to rob is listening to this broadcast. You're walking around that store waiting for some people to leave so you can rob it. God is with you in that 7-Eleven. He's always calling you. Jesus has called you to repentance. The Holy Spirit prompting you, don't do this. Don't do that. You know it's wrong to commit this robbery. You know it's wrong. And that knowing inside of you is the Holy Spirit telling you, talking to your spirit, putting the thoughts in your mind, don't do this. But if you do it and get caught, that doesn't mean you're shut off from God. Now you're in prison paying the, the penalty for the crime you committed in the natural, but God is still with you in that prison cell. A lot of people will, will blame God. God, how did you let this happen to me? No, God was telling you don't do it. Don't do it. You listen to the devil telling you go ahead and do it. It'll be all right. Now, in prison, you're sitting there. God. And he's there. Yes. He's waiting for you to repent. I went to Bible college with a person who had committed murder. Sentenced to a life prison. One of the worst prisons in the United States. But he met God in that prison cell. And his life turned around. And within a period of about eight years, God miraculously got him released from prison. His name was Bear Morgan. And you want your depiction of a motorcycle, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, you know, person in the motorcycle, clubs, gangs, whatever. This was Bear. I mean, he looked the part. The first time I met him, I'm thinking, oh, Lord. He came up and gave me the, one of them, what we called the bear hugs. And his spirit was completely different from his appearance. But that was his ministry, to go to these biker meetings and witness about what God had done for him.
Amen. God is wherever you are at. He is just one call away and he will hear you. I guarantee it. Amen. So we don't need to run somewhere to connect with God. That's why I said everything I just did. We have a God and we serve a God who meets us where we are at. We don't have to find him because he always has his eye on us. And he is always ready to give full attention to our prayers, no matter where we are. And when the prophet woke up, he was greeted by the voice of the Lord. We just simply asked the question, What are you doing here, Elijah? He gently rebukes him for going so far off course from the mission on which he was sent. Why did you flee from a fight that God was ready to fight for him. Why did he leave his post at such a critical moment? And you can really read in verse 10 his reply. I have been very zealous for you, Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put all your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. What a contrast between Elijah's attitude towards his fellow Israelites and the stand that Moses took long before. Moses pled with God on behalf of his people even though they committed a terrible sin, going so far as to ask God to blot out his own name, Moses' own name, out of the book of life if God would not forgive his people. Elijah, on the other hand, Seems to be saying, look, Lord, these people are hopeless. Just give up on them. They want nothing to do with you. They've already killed all the other prophets. Now they're after me. I, look, I got, I've tried my best, but they're as stubborn as a whole herd of mules. But Elijah had not yet answered the Lord's question. What are you doing here? Neither his frustration, his fear, nor his desperation were valid reasons for going AWOL. But as any good military commander will often visit his troops to encourage and instruct them, especially in the time of major battles, so God came to Elijah. In verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, again, came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard the voice of the Lord, he pulled his cloak over his face, went outside and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, folks, 
if God asks you a question and you provide your answer, and then he asks you the same exact question again, there is a fairly good chance that the answer you gave the first time was not correct. And now God's giving you a chance to answer again. But we don't see Elijah picking up on that hint. And he replies with the same exact answer that he gave the first time, which was just as wrong as, the, as when he gave it the first time. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And basically what he's saying to God is, I don't want them to kill me because they're going to torture me and make me suffer. I'm just here to give you my life. Just take my life from me, Lord, and I'll be happy. And the whole reason Elijah made this grueling journey, think about it, he ran at least 41 days to this mountain because he wanted a special audience with the creator of the universe, the Lord God Almighty. One that he thought he could only get if he went to the mountain of God. So the Lord presented Elijah with three awesome displays of natural power, wind, earthquake, and fire. But the Lord, Scripture says, was not in any of these manifestations. I mean, you have the wind ripping rocks, tipping rocks off the mountaintop, rolling them down the mountainside. He's showing Elijah just a wind blowing from the Lord could tear a mountain apart. Then there was the earthquake. He's showing Elijah he can shake even gigantic mountains. Elijah still wasn't impressed. So he sent a fire. A fire could consume all the brush on the mountain, but not destroy the mountain. And he's showing Elijah all of these things. And Elijah still answers the same way. Because the Lord showed him he wasn't in any of those manifestations of destruction but that he was with Elijah. Because after everything quieted down, the Spirit of the Lord whispered again in Elijah's ear, which should tell Elijah, God is right there. Amen. What are you doing here, Elijah? Basically, he's saying, I told you to go to Jezreel. You outran the chariot 20 miles as I supernaturally 
helped you outrun Ahab back to town. Your place was supposed to be in that town. That's where your provision was and is. What are you doing here, Elijah? And although his reply was the same as the first time he was asked, perhaps Elijah now said it with a different tone of voice, realizing that although God's works of mighty miracles and can bring down exact judgment, his most effective work is done much more intimately and personally. And even though he had lost patience with his brother Israelites, God had not yet given up on them, but rather was willing to enter the next phase of his plan to turn the hearts of many people back to him. The miraculous sign on Mount Carmel was the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, and that it was successful in God using these things to capture people's attention. It was now time for the gentle whisper in the ear of Elijah. It is only through this phase that people are truly saved. Through that personal interaction, the personal relationship, rather than through fear or even awe. Think about it. God can use natural elements to capture people's attention. You might go through a hurricane or a tornado or a flood or a devastating wildfire. And through it all, you're full of fear, anxiety, and worry. And when you come out the other side, you are so thankful. Oh, thank you, God, for delivering me from the hurricane, the tornado, the flood, the fire, whatever the case may be. Thank you for delivering me from that. And now, in that special moment, when the trouble has passed you by, and you have that intimate moment where you are talking to God where you are at. In that special moment, God is able to talk to you personally, one-on-one. -on -one. And it is through these moments that people will surrender their life to the Lord recognizing he is God. Just like when Elijah called fire down on the altar, all the people present bowed down on their faces to the ground and declared, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. The Lord, he is God. They were in awe of what had just happened. What does God have to do to get your attention? Amen? 
it was now time for this little gentle whisper in Elijah's ear. And it is only through this type of act where the Lord God himself through his Holy Spirit can minister to your inner man and you hear that voice inside of you saying, what are you doing here? I have something different planned for you. Will you surrender to me? That is how that personal one-on-one relationship with God is established. Amen? It trumps fear. It trumps danger. It trumps the awe of God, the miracles of God. Because, folks, there is no greater miracle. None. No greater miracle in all of the universe than when a person makes the decision to become born again. Think about it. You cannot make the decision in the natural. You know, I don't like my life. I think I'm going to go and start over. It's impossible. Even Nicodemus, confused on this subject, asked Jesus, how can a man be born again? Does he have to return to his mother's womb and start over? That's thinking logically, and it's thinking naturally. Human logic fails in comparison to God's logic. Satan's logic fails miserably when compared to God's logic. Scripture says if the devils would have known what Jesus and the Father had planned for the cross, they would have never crucified Jesus. But they did. And Jesus allowed them to think they had defeated him. They gave him access to the deepest part of hell. And while they were there tormenting him, three days and three nights, he took it until he heard the voice of God. I love that song. From the grave he arose. Remember that song? Hallelujah. And he defeated the devil and every demon from hell in the deepest, darkest pit. He went there so you don't have to. Amen. Amen. Back to Elijah. Notice how, except For one little glitch, the death threat from the queen, everything was seemingly going extremely well. After all, the people had vowed to serve Jehovah Yahweh, the Lord, and him only. And the rain came, bringing an end to the famine, proof that God answered the prayers of Elijah, All the prophets and priests of Baal were dead. But somehow Elijah couldn't seem to see the good through the bad of one threat. Jezebel could not do anything to Elijah. If she really 
truly could have killed Elijah, she'd have sent a warrior, a soldier, with a spear to run him through. But she knew she couldn't touch him. So she sent a servant, a lowly servant, with a note. And it was enough to strike fear in the heart of the man of God. Like I said, Elijah should have read the message, heard the message, however it was delivered, and said, you go back and tell that wicked queen, you want some of me too? Come and get it, because I got something for you. I mean, it is totally blowing my mind how someone who is walking in all these miracles could turn tail and run knowing God backed up everything he said. Think about it. He went and told the king, it's not going to rain till I say so. He was miraculously fed by the ravens twice a day. We figure for at least 18 months. When the brook dried up because there was no rain, the brook dried up. He still said, God, you're the one who said to come here. And here I stay until you tell me to go somewhere else. The word of the Lord came to him and said, I want you to go to Zarephath. For I have commanded there a widow to sustain you. So he gets up and he goes to Zarephath, about a three-day journey. Gets to Zarephath, the widow woman, not complaining, she's just explaining, as we studied last time. Look, I only got enough cake for one, or enough flour and oil for one cake. That's it. That's all I got. And Elijah says, make me some first, and God will bless it. And it will not run out. And she did, and God did, and they stayed there for another year and a half. At some point uh, during that time frame, the widow's son caught a disease and died. And God listened to the prayer of Elijah and brought breath back into that boy. I mean, Elijah should be walking on cloud nine. Knowing he needs to watch his words because whatever he says, God's going to do. God now sends him back to Ahab. Ahab's, oh, here you are, the one who's causing all this trouble in Israel. And, it, and Elijah still rebukes the king. He's not slowing down one bit. It's not me, it's your fault, joker. Now, king, here's what God wants you to do, and here's what I'm telling you to do. Elijah telling the king of Israel what to do, and the king is doing it. Go, gather all the people together. Bring them up to Mount Carmel. Go, get all the prophets of Baal and bring them to Mount Carmel. Go, get all these other prophets served by the queen at her table and provision. Bring them as well. The prophets of the grove. What does Elijah do? I mean, uh, what does Ahab do? He doesn't. He is following the directions of Elijah. He calls fire down from heaven, consumes not just the sacrifice, but the altar and everything around it. And he sees all the people publicly confess 
that Yahweh is now our God. We will serve him. Then he prays for rain. God answers his prayer, sends the rain. Then God says, I want you to go run faster than the chariot back to town. And God supernaturally makes that happen. Elijah should be standing strong in the face of this threat. Instead, what's happened, we covered some of this last time, he killed at least 450 of these prophets, probably slew 850 total because of the prophets of the grove. And he's seen the blood. You kill 800 people in one location, there's some blood on the ground. He's seen these maimed and desecrated and, and, and mutilated carcasses of bodies and all the blood. And he's probably covered in blood as well. And he was probably a sight when he got back to town, running all that way with sweat dripping through the blood, dripping off his body. He gets into his house. And he takes a quick bath and starts to clean up when the knock comes to the door. And it's the servant. And he gives him the message that within 24 hours, you're going to be just like they are. And in this mental image, he sees what a gruesome sight that he was responsible for. And the devil whispering in his ear, you're going to be just like they are. And he's seen the blood in his clothes stained. There's probably blood all over his house where it was dripping off of him because of the sweat. And this mental image is what he holds in his mind and not the fire coming down, not the birds feeding him twice a day, not the provision provided for him with the widow woman, not raising her son from the dead. So he turns tail and runs. That is what Elijah is looking at in his mind. And that's what happens when we allow fear to override our faith. Just like Peter in his water-walking uh, debut. Amen. He was doing great as long as he had his eyes on Jesus. But when he became distracted by the wind and the waves, he began to sink. You know, we covered this a little bit, oh, several, several sessions ago. About our rabbi, Jesus. And how disciples are called to be like their rabbi, their master, their teacher. And they seen Jesus walking on the water. Peter, as a disciple of the Lord, said, Well, if I'm supposed to be like you, Lord, call me to come to you. 
I'll walk on the water too. And Jesus, loving this statement of faith, says, Come on, boy, get out of the boat. And Peter climbs out of the boat and is walking on the water, being just like his rabbi. And then he turns and probably looked back at the boys in the boat who are still in the boat, said, Peter, what are you doing? It's a storm out here. We're, we're not even supposed to be in a boat in the middle of this storm, let alone out of the boat walking on water. What are you doing? We don't walk on water anyways. And he hears their testimony. He sees the wind blowing, the waves slapping him in the face. And he takes his eyes off Jesus. And it says he begins to sink. It was not, I mean, if you and I got out of the boat trying to walk on the water, bloop, I mean, you're down quick. This says he began to sink. And it was slow enough that he could call out to Jesus to save him. And Jesus walked over to him and pulled him up. So it was not a bloop type sinking. It was more of a gradual lowering as his faith level was being weakened by what he was seeing. Amen? And that is kind of the same situation Elijah's in. But instead of this slow lowering of his faith, he turns and every step he takes on the run, every day he's on the run, is weakening his faith little by little. Because all he's thinking about is the threat on his life that has just been made. He's not thinking about all of the miraculous provision that God had given him. He's not thinking about that testimony. He's thinking about the threat on his life. He's thinking about the images that are in his mind of all these prophets, 850 of them that have been killed. He's thinking that he's going to be just like one of them if he don't get as far away from Jezebel as he can. And the only place that he can think he can get to is to the mountain of God. And since he knows, well, I just lost the battle. I lost the war. I may have won several battles, but I lost the war. There's no way God can use me now. So God, just take my life. Get it over with. You kill me instead of them. You see, our ministry in this world is much like Elijah's. Sometimes we feel like we're the only ones left who are really standing for God. That everyone else and everybody else is out to get us. Much too often we long to say with the distressed prophet, Lord, that's enough. I can't take anymore. But take comfort in the fact that when Satan increases the intensity with which he tries to inflict us, that could very well be your good sign that you are stepping hard on his toes. Amen. In fact, Jesus tells us to rejoice when we're being persecuted because of his namesake. Praise God. And we learn from the Reformation persecution 
seems to breed faith in amazing volume. Amen. I mean, the day and time we live in right now, we are protected in America to an extent. Those days are rapidly coming to a close. But as of right now, the today, the day of this broadcast, the day you're hearing this, Christians as a whole in this nation are still protected from the persecution that they're facing elsewhere in the world. I've seen one estimate that just in the past dozen years or so since 9-11, that there have been estimated 300 million Christians martyred for the name of Christ. 300 million! That's almost every man and woman and child in the United States of America. But yet, our government doesn't want to acknowledge it. Our government does not want to say that all these Christians are being murdered and we're going to put a stop to it. Why? Because of oil? Because of money? Because they're trying to encourage the one world government? All those are yes. The answer to all those questions is yes. Because this is the last days. We are living in the last of the last days. And all these things must come to pass just like Jesus said. Amen. We are living in the days the Bible talks about as a sign of the end times. Which means the soon return of Jesus is very, very near. Amen? It could happen before I close this broadcast in just a couple minutes. It could happen before work tomorrow morning. It could happen on the way home from church today. We don't know when. We only know it's happening. Jesus likened it to a woman about to give birth. The pain and the, the intensity of the pain will increase. The frequency of the pains increases until they're happening one after another, non-stop. But the baby hasn't been born yet. The husband puts his wife in the car. They start driving to the hospital. It is a, say, a 15-minute drive to the hospital. Although he may be going a little faster than normal, he still feels I can get my wife to the hospital in time. But we hear stories all the time on the news about, you know, the baby decided to come before they were at the hospital. They thought they had more time to get to the appropriate place to receive that baby into the world. But the baby had other plans. All the warning signs were there. 
the labor pains had started. First one, little one, followed several minutes later by another little one. Those were the warning signs. Take heed. They're still waiting it out. It's not time yet. And then the labor pains start getting a little stronger. Coming a little closer together. They should get in the car and go. Well, we'll just wait. Then the water breaks and the pains, they become very intense. And they're starting to happen really close together now. Agony, screams. Well, I guess it's time we need to get ready to go. What you think, Gertrude? If Gertrude wasn't in so much pain, she'd probably haul off and punch her husband for making her wait this long before they even tried to walk to the car. But even as these labor pains are intensifying and the frequency is coming closer together, they still feel they have enough time to get to the hospital. Praise God. Hallelujah. So away they go. But the baby has a different thought. The baby decides it's time to come now. Before they're ready. And folks, that's what's going to happen with Jesus. We see the problems happening right now. We see the labor pains intensifying. Every problem is a lot worse than the one before it. All of these problems are beginning to come closer and closer and closer and closer together. And people think they still have enough time that they can, quote unquote, get their life right before Jesus calls us out. You see, what we could relate to the breaking of the water is the rapture when Jesus says, come on out, my people. Some people think, well, I don't believe in the rapture. I believe we're going through the tribulation. Well, rejoice if you want to. Either way, the labor pains are there, aren't they? And if you deny that the intensity and the frequency is not increasing, then you're just like the husband who tells his wife, look, uh, just hold off till the end of this movie. It's a good movie. I want to see the end of it. Let's not go to the hospital yet. And the baby will determine the time. Just as Jesus is waiting for the Father to say, now is the time. And if you're not ready, if you are not prepared to receive Jesus, then you will face the complete reality of your true spiritual condition when you are least expecting to have to face it. Elijah felt the need to make a long journey to try and find that kind of faith that he had before, along with some comfort and reassurance. And, as with an exhausted, 
bruised, bleeding boxer who longed to hear the bell ring so he could go to his corner. That's what a lot of people are looking to in the world today as well. You know, I can't remember the boxer's name. I really don't follow boxing. When I mention this incident, a lot of you will remember, and I'll probably get emails with the name. But remember when, I think it's Roberto Duran, now that I'm thinking about it. When he had taken such a beating, and the bell saved him from going down, he went to his corner, and he told his handlers, that's it, I'm done, no more, no mas. He said, no mas. The doctor and the referee came over to check on him, and he just shook his head. No mas, no mas. He goes, no more. I'm done. Even though he came back later and recaptured his crown and, and still won more fights in his career, he is not known for that. He is only known today for giving up and saying no mas. No mas. No more. I'm done. I quit. That is what we see with many Christians today. They don't want to take a stand for Christ. They don't want to fight the battle anymore. Believing that God is more than able to bring them through whatever the world may throw at them. Their faith is in their own ability, not the ability of God. Despite all the things God has brought you through to this point, you still think it's your own power that gets you through. You don't remember all the times God lifted you up and turned you around and set your feet on solid ground as the old gospel hymn goes. Amen. In this world in which we now live, we desperately need a lot of corner time where we can just sit on that stool for a minute, take a break. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I need a break. God understands that. And he will give you some water to quench your thirst. He'll wipe your brow. He'll mend your wounds. But we do not need to make a difficult journey to some faraway place. You know, we don't need to say, I need to go to a mountain and just get alone with God as high as I can climb so I can be near God. You can go to the top of Mount Everest to seek God and all you're going to get is frostbite. You don't need to go as deep into the woods as I can get. Get away from everything and everybody just so I can be alone with God. You can do that in your bedroom and close the closet door. God is as near to you wherever you are at as the next word out of your mouth. Amen? When we need God. He is as close as your Bible. 
That's where I was on January 25th, 1992 in a little empty apartment room in Columbus, Georgia. I'm not going through. We're almost out of time. When I called out to God, I need you. And my scripture reading for that night was Psalms 34. When I got down to verse 7, it said, This poor, the Lord has heard this poor man cry and shall deliver him from all his trouble. That I was seeking God and I had his word and I found God in his word. My life changed from that moment on. Amen. God, if you're seeking God, you don't have to run anywhere. It's as close as his word. Jesus is as close as your confession of faith. Amen? You know, when we are finally reassured, and we finally get encouraged, and we finally get in strengthened, God will tell us what the next step is, just like he told Elijah. Now go back. Because until the Lord returns, it's our responsibility to help draw attention to that gentle whisper that God is putting in other people's ears. Amen? He may be using you to whisper his word as a word of encouragement in someone else's ear. And if he doesn't call you to give that word of encouragement, he may give you the prophecy to declare publicly to the king and whoever will listen, Thus saith the Lord your God. And then you just say and you do what God tells you to do. But before that can happen, you have to have that relationship with Jesus Christ, to be born again. That's how we started this whole thing, to be born again. The greatest miracle that ever happened is when you were born again. And if that hasn't happened to you yet, join me in this confession right now. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I come to you this day. I believe you exist. I believe you sent your only son, Jesus, to die a sinner's death in my place. And now, Lord, I ask you, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, create in me a new man, one that loves God. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. You pray that for your email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and be blessed in all you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.